Jesus said to Mary, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you now, as we do every week, every time we come together, that you would be here in our midst, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, alleluia. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. We come today once again to the celebration of the discovery upon which our entire faith, our entire worldview, if you will, our entire lives, this is the truth upon which every single thing hangs. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty. And Jesus was alive. Now the implications of this are literally cosmic, having to do even with whether or not there is in fact a God at all. During a youth group meeting a few weeks ago, our family minister, Michael Neal, did a wonderful teaching about some of Thomas Aquinas' proofs for the existence of God. And as part of the introduction to that lesson, we spent a few minutes each talking about why it was that we believe in God. And it's only a little bit of a simplification to say that this morning is why I believe in God. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty and Jesus was alive. But of course, a long time has passed since then. And there have been enough flower arrangements and family photos and egg hunts and Sunday afternoon brunches since then that the stark, fantastical nature of the thing has been blunted a little bit. But this is what we actually believe happened in history, in the real world. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty and Jesus was Alive. Do you hear me? <laughs> the man Jesus, who called himself Son of God and claimed that the world would be saved through him, was killed and then on the third day rose from the grave, proving that it was all true. Every few years, I reread Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And I'm always reassured by it. This investigative journalist who set out to disprove the resurrection as a way to convince his wife that her newfound Christian faith was ignorant and ridiculous, actually, upon examining the evidence for himself, came to believe that the church's claims about Jesus were true. That when the women got to the tomb, it was empty. And Jesus was Alive, actually and really alive, that he had been crucified until he was dead, was laid in a tomb 
and then on the morning of the third day was discovered to be alive again. Are you getting the impression that this is important? (laughs) I sure hope so. I've only said it eight or nine times so far. We've got three or four more to go. Jesus being alive again means everything. But sometimes I think that the actually dead to actually alive part gets lost in the shuffle. And I think that part of the reason that we blunt that edge, almost unintentionally, I think, with all the sort of hoopla around Easter, eggs and spring and department store sales, part of the reason that we blunt that spectacular reality of an actually empty tomb is that we are made uncomfortable by the implication that we have a dire enough problem that such a cataclysmic solution would be necessary. It's so much less offensive to our pride if we can just say something like, Easter is a symbol of new beginnings. But a real death, a real resurrection that was made necessary by our sin, can it really be so bad? Well, listen, the church and the Bible is at great pains to convince us, to convince you that, yes, it really is that bad. Did you live through this last week with us? If you didn't, here's what we did on Palm Sunday. We paraded around this room, praising Jesus's name, only to a few minutes later shout derisively, crucify him, crucify him. As we read the Passion. And then on Friday, Good Friday, we read through what we call the reproaches, which is one of the most difficult liturgical things we do in the church year. We read, putting words in God's mouth as though He's talking to us, His story of all He has done for us and for our ancestors down through the centuries. And then we recount point. For point how we turned our backs on him every step of the way, running from his gifts and trying to keep for ourselves what is rightfully his. And all of this liturgy is intended, among other things, to convince us, to convince you of the profound nature of your problem. Our prayer. Our collect, the prayer that we pray together for the second Sunday of Lent, says it clearly. We pray, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Not insufficient power. No power. Now, it's tough to get sinful people like you and me to the point where we can acknowledge That in order to be redeemed, we need something as radical as an empty tomb and a risen Savior. In the second chapter of Mark's gospel, he records the story of Jesus' interaction with and healing of a paralyzed man. Jesus is teaching to a large crowd and a paralytic is brought by four of his friends for a healing But 
This group can't get close enough to Jesus because of the crowd, so they lower their friend to Jesus through a hole that they cut in the roof of the house where Jesus is teaching. But Jesus doesn't, at first, give them the healing they expect. No. When Jesus sees what they've done, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now let's pick up the reading in Mark chapter 2 and verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, the reason that Jesus' first words to the paralyzed man were so surprising is that everyone gathered around Jesus that day completely underestimated that man's problem. Right? Their diagnosis was way off. The scribes, the disciples, the gathered crowd... Even the man himself and his friends probably didn't really understand his deepest need. They, along with everyone else, looked at a paralyzed man and thought that it was his legs that were his biggest problem. That his legs needed to be healed. These friends go to these great lengths to get their friend in front of a healer, even going so far as to take the roof off of the house in which Jesus is teaching. And what does Jesus do? He solves the real problem. A problem that nobody but Jesus knew this man really had. Son, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd is astonished. Forgiving sins? Who can do this? Well, let me tell you, the one who can do that is the same son of almighty God who cannot be held in check even by death itself. It's no accident that everyone there, when the paralytic is healed, says, we never saw anything like this. Well, just you wait. Wait for Easter morning. Because in just a few years, the world would say of Easter morning and its aftermath, we never saw anything like this. And this Jesus, the Son of God, who tells a paralyzed man to walk and who rises on the third day, says to each one of us, I do this for you. Your diagnosis is way off. 
you think you're doing okay. I think I'm doing okay. We're not. You think you just might need a little push in the right direction. You need far more than that. You think you can do anything you set your mind to. You can't. Your true disease is a sin-sick heart. And the prognosis is terminal. You don't need a little help. Even a healing won't be enough. You need a resurrection. And today, Easter Sunday, we celebrate the good news that in Jesus you have a resurrection. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty. And Jesus was alive. Sons and daughters, your sins are forgiven. Many popular theologians have observed, and I I found this variously attributed online to about a dozen different people. Suffice it to say, it's not original to me. But this observation helps shine a light on the connection between a proper diagnosis and the kind of saving work that Jesus came to do. If our greatest need had been information, the saying goes, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. Son, Jesus said, sons and daughters, he says to you, your sins are forgiven. We were, as St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, dead in trespasses and sins. That's a bad diagnosis. That's bad news. But it is the only diagnosis profound enough to be true. Not lame, not sick, dead. When St. Paul describes the human condition in Romans being unable to do the things that you want to do and compelled to do the things you hate. He doesn't describe it as paralysis or sickness. He calls it death. That's the diagnosis for which Jesus's death and resurrection is the appropriate prescription. We were and are dead as a doornail in sin. But at the same time, given new and joyful life on account of Christ. That's the transition that faith in Jesus describes. Death to new life. When you're dead, only resurrection will do. And not a symbolic resurrection. Not a metaphorical resurrection. An actual resurrection. Resurrection, an empty tomb, a hole in a rock that is void of humans, a living Savior, Christ the Lord. In Luke 8, we read the story of Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, and his daughter, who is very sick. Because he knows that Jesus is a healer, he travels a long way to beg Jesus to help him. 
But on his way to Jairus' home, Jesus is delayed on the road, and word comes that Jairus' daughter has died. But Jesus is not deterred, because for an Easter morning Jesus, Jairus' daughter is now just right where he wants her. You too, sitting here this morning, are right where an Easter morning Jesus wants you. Death is where it is most obvious that you have no power in yourself to help yourself. Death is where you're most ready. Death is where Jesus does his most profound work. Here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones finishes the story of Jesus and Jairus' daughter in her Jesus storybook Bible. At Jairus' house, everyone was crying. But Jesus said, I'm going to wake her up. Everyone laughed at him because they knew she was dead. Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom. And there, lying in the corner, in the shadows, was the still little figure. Jesus sat down on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up rubbed her eyes as if she'd had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room. He was mending God's broken world. Jesus reached down into death and brought that little girl back to life. And that is exactly what he does for you. Easter morning is God throwing open the shutters and shining glorious sunlight into this dark world. Here, all too often, death still reigns in the news, in our relationships, in our hearts. But today... And now, every day, because of today, because of the first Easter morning, death itself has been defeated. Death itself has been drowned out, overcome. Good news has overwhelmed bad news. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty. And Jesus was alive. And now this living, resurrected Jesus has a word for you. This is what Jesus says to you in light of Easter morning. My child, your sins are forgiven. It's time to get up. And he reached down into death and brought you back to life. Hear the good news of Easter. The you who would try and fail to save yourself is dead. 
taken to the cross with Christ. But that is not the end of your story. It wasn't the end of his story. The tomb is still empty. And all searching for a deceased Jesus is still in vain. It wasn't the end of his story and it's not the end of yours. Jesus is alive. And in him you are alive too. Because that tomb was empty, you have been made new. I know. Believe me, I know. It's just as hard to believe that as the fact that Jesus actually and literally rose from the dead. But he did. And it's true for you too. It's actually true that he reached down into death and brought you back to life. And as he said, three days before the stone was rolled away, it is finished. So now, now we celebrate. Now we live in the bright, shining light of this good news. We're going to say the Nicene Creed here in a minute. This is a statement of faith, a statement of belief. We actually believe these wonderful things. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and by so doing reached down into death and brought me back to life. Make that belief your own. Jesus rose from the dead, and by so doing, he reached down into death and brought you back to life. That is the truth. And whether you believe it now this morning for the first time, or reminding yourself of it for the hundredth, say the creed with us. Affirm or reaffirm your faith. Then come to communion. Celebrate. Jesus' body and blood broken and shed and then raised for you. These wonderful things are true. When the women got to the tomb, it was empty. And Jesus was alive. Jesus rose from the dead. And by so doing, he reached down into death and brought you back to life. And now, on his account, you are sons and daughters of God. Your sins are forgiven. And you have been made new. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Amen.